0: Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, uh, John 4, for our time of study in the Word this morning. We're doing, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this Gospel, we come this morning to John chapter 4, verse uh, 28, and it's going to be a little different this morning. We're going to look at verses 28 through thirty, uh, and then verses twenty or thirty-nine through forty-two. So, um, uh, we'll be jumping around uh, just a bit. But the title of the message is "A Broken Woman Wielded by Jesus." A broken woman uh, wielded by Jesus. When um, our four kids were. At home, my wife and I are empty nesters now. Uh, But when our kids were at home, I used to go into our boys' bedroom uh, before bedtime and I would recite uh, a poem to them on many of those evenings. And the title of the poem is uh, Opportunity uh, by Edward Roland Sill. And I'd like to share this poem with you as we begin this morning. Uh, Some of you have probably heard it, but the poet says, This I beheld, or dreamed it in a dream. There spread a cloud of dust along a plain, and underneath the cloud, or in it, raged a furious battle. And men yelled, and swords shocked upon swords and shields. A prince's banner wavered, then staggered backward, hemmed by foes. A coward hung along the battle's edge and thought, Had I a sword of keener steel, that blue blade that the king's son bears. But this blunt thing, he snapped and flung it from his hand. Then lowering, he crept away and left the field. Then came the king's son, wounded and sore bestead and weaponless, and saw the broken sword, hilt buried in the dry and trodden sand, and ran and snatched it. And with battle shout lifted afresh, he hewed his enemy down and saved a great cause that heroic day. My boys loved that poem, partly because whenever I got to the hewing part, uh, I would hew them down with a pretend sword, and for some reason they loved being hewed. But I also love this poem because of the lessons that It teaches one of those lessons is that an opportunity is what you make of it. Another lesson which suits our purposes in this sermon today, I think we can state as follows that the primary determiner of the effectiveness of a sword is the person wielding it, the primary determiner of the effectiveness of a sword is the person. Wielding that sword. And that's true, right? I mean, even the sharpest sword on the planet in the hand of a coward is worthless in battle, right? But a dull and broken sword in the hand of a true champion can be an awesome instrument. The title of my message this morning is A Broken Woman Wielded by Jesus, because in our passage today, we observe Jesus placing a broken woman in his hand and wielding her mightily to advance his cause in Samaria. We have seen how in John chapter 4, Jesus sits by the well and has an amazing conversation with this Samaritan woman. The conversation ranges from living water to the matter of her sin, from the topic of worship to Jesus' identity as the Messiah. By itself, this conversation that Jesus has with this woman is worthy of inclusion in John's gospel. But in our passage today, we're going to begin to see the broader scope of what Jesus is really up to. Jesus' real intention is to bring salvation to the people of the city of Sychar in Samaria. And His strategy, evidently, all along is to make the Samaritan woman the key instrument through which He is going to reach this city. In other words, up until verse 27, we find the story of Jesus going about the process of picking up this broken woman and putting her into his hand so that he might now use her to advance his cause in Samaria. And that is a crazy strategy for reaching the Samaritans in the city of Sychar that I don't think any of us would have ever dreamed up on our own. I mean, after all, there were sharper swords available than this woman. Jesus could have gone to a member of the Samaritan priesthood and used a priest, a spiritual leader, to reach this city. He could have gone to the mayor of the city and won the mayor to himself so that through the mayor he could reach the city for himself. Jesus could have even gone to an intact family, untainted by divorce, featuring a mom and a dad and wonderful children who obey and honor their parents. Jesus could have chosen such a model family and used them to win the city, but he doesn't use any of such people. He passes over all of these and chooses instead a woman who has been divorced five times and who is right now living with a man that she is not married to. Jesus decides to save and then to use this broken woman with a whole lot of baggage. This woman who is saddled with the history of Failure and brokenness and sin. He chooses a woman whose life had rendered her a moral outcast among her people. He chooses a woman whose life has been full of brokenness and disappointment, whose life had fallen so far short of what, no doubt, her initial dreams for herself would have been. He chooses a woman who has passed. Her prime, no doubt. She's a used up has-been, cast off by five successive men who ultimately found her useless. Five men had picked her up and then cast her aside in the dry and trodden sand, leaving her rejected. But then came the king's son, Jesus And he sees the broken sword, hilt buried in the dry and trodden sand, and he picks her up and he wields her in our passage today in his mission to win the people of the city of Sychar to himself. And that ought to encourage all of us, right? How many of you would say, my life has fallen short of what I would have imagined? for myself. My life is full of failure and sin. I've been a disappointment to myself and to others. I've offended God through my sins against him. And I come from brokenness and I've become a broken person with a whole lot of baggage. Is that you? Is that you? If it is, Just know that Jesus delights to use broken people. In fact, I think we can say that there is no more powerful force on earth than a humbly broken person in the hand of Jesus being wielded by him to win other broken people to himself. We know this to be true because... Your effectiveness in ministry is not really determined simply by how sharp or strong you are, but by the one who holds you in his hand. Amen? Before we pick up in our passage today, let me remind you of what this woman of Samaria has already done that uh, renders her uh, testimony to the people of her city so powerful. Let me just give you five things. Uh, You may not have time to write these down, but you will recall these things, no doubt. Number one, she asked Jesus for living water. Number two, she allowed Jesus to go to her past and her present sin issues, and she didn't shrink away from that. Number three, she wanted to worship God and to get right with him. So she asked Jesus, A question about worship. Number four, she allowed Jesus to be her worship director. And number five, she received Jesus' revelation of himself as the Messiah. And now that she has done these things and has placed herself firmly in the hand of Christ, let's observe what she does and how God uses her to reach the people of her city for Christ. And the way we'll break down our study of this, these verses that we'll look at today is we'll make six observations, as you see on your notes, six observations regarding how the Samaritan woman is used by Christ to reach her people for him. Six observations. And the first three of these observations are regarding what this woman does And then the final three observations are regarding what God will do through and on account of her. But the first thing that we see, the first observation we can make is this. You can fill in the blank on your notes. She goes to her people and invites them to come see Jesus. She goes to her people and invites them to come see Jesus. Observe what we find in verse... 28 and beyond as to what she does. As soon as Jesus has revealed himself to her as the Messiah, verse 28, so the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man. We'll stop right there uh, for the moment. First of all, we observe that she left her water pot which means that her priorities have suddenly changed. She's no longer interested in getting water and transporting it back into town. Now she's only interested in carrying the news of the living water back to the people of her town. Her original chore that sent her to the well can wait. Also, the fact that she leaves her water pot at the well indicates that she fully intends to return to this particular spot by leaving her water pot at the well. She's marking the spot of her return. She knows that she will be returning to this well and that she will pick up her water pot then. Secondly, we're told in verse 28 that when she went into the city and spoke She spoke to whom? To the men. Perhaps these men were her former husbands, including the man that she is living with now. But almost certainly, she's speaking to the other men of the city as well. And notice what she says to the men of the city. She says to them, come. And in saying come, she's implying that she herself is going back to Jesus and she's inviting them to come with her as she does so. Before she met Jesus, this woman no doubt tried to win men to herself, but now she is seeking to win men to Jesus and to get them to come with her to him. In this woman's example, we see part of the essence of evangelism, I think. Evangelism, as we've talked about earlier in John's gospel, is not sending people to Jesus. It's bringing people with you to Jesus. The message of a good evangelist is not go to Jesus, but come to Jesus In other words, come with me to Jesus, whom I keep going to myself. Parents, don't send your children to Jesus. You go to Jesus and seek to bring them with you as you do so. As they grow up in your home, keep going to Jesus again and again and again in your good times and in your times of heartbreak, in your moments of victory and thankfulness, and also in your moments of repentance, and seek to bring your children with you as you keep going to Jesus. Look again at the text and listen to what she says in verse 29. Come see a man. And notice that verb see, she's inviting them to behold Jesus and obviously to observe the kind of man that he is. She herself is returning to take an even closer look at Jesus and she's inviting the men of the, of the city to join her in doing that. Look again at what she says, come see a man, she says. Some people start their evangelism of the lost by saying, come see a law. That's not bad. Others may start their evangelism by saying, come see an argument that I have that will convince you that what I have to say is true. But this woman starts off saying, come see a man. And that man is Jesus. Jesus. Timothy Keller was once talking to someone who was frustrated. Uh, They were a non-Christian. They were frustrated because they were looking for an airtight argument to convince them once and for all of the truth of Christianity. And Keller said to this person, what if instead of sending you an airtight argument, God sent you instead an airtight person. Well, this woman believes that that's exactly what God has done. So she says to the people of her city, come see a man, and that man is Jesus. As for what is happening here in John 4, this is an amazing turnaround for this woman Initially, we find her sneaking out to this well outside of the city in the heat of the day by herself in order to avoid people. But Jesus has changed her from being an avoider of people to one who now wants people to join her in going to Jesus. Formerly, she wanted to go to the well by herself. Now she wants to bring as many people with her to the well as possible so that they might join her in beholding this man, Jesus. What kind of man is this Jesus that she wants the people of her city to join her in going to see? Well, this brings us to the second observation regarding how this woman is used by Christ to reach her people for him. number two, she tells her people that Jesus had spoken to her about her sin. She tells her people that Jesus had spoken to her about her sin. Look again at verse 29. She says, "'Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done.'" First of all, she tells them that Jesus is a man who told her something. In other words, he's a man who physically showed up and actually talked to her. That's startling in and of itself because men, as we've seen in prior weeks, did not normally talk to women in public back in this day, not even to their wife or daughter in a public setting We even saw back in verse 27 how it was that when the disciples returned to Jesus, the text says they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. And this woman is now coming from that conversation and testifying to her people that Jesus had done just that. He talked to her. And as for what he told her when he talked to her, look at the text. She says, he told me all the things that I have done. And we know exactly what she's referring to because when Jesus was speaking with her earlier, she had asked for the living water that he gives and he responded by telling her to go get her husband. When she replied by saying that she had no husband to get, Jesus said to her in verses 17 and 18, look at the text, You are correct in saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. Now, Jesus may have said more to her than this, but at the very least, he said these words to her. So, as this woman now speaks to the people of her city, part of what she is saying is this man knew the full history of my broken relationships with men, and he knew my present sin as well. And not only does he know it all, but he talked to me knowing all of that. He crossed the gender barrier and the ethnic barrier and the moral barrier, and he engaged with me and spoke with me and when he first began speaking to me and offering me living water i initially figured that well he must not know the truth about me but then i found out he knew everything that there was to know about me and he still talked to me and offered me living water Ultimately, this woman is saying, I have found out that I am fully known and loved by this man, and I plan on going back to him, and I'm inviting you to come with me to see him. As we've talked about before, um, earlier in this chapter, people have three great needs first, to be known be known utterly, secondly, to be loved, and thirdly, to be known and loved by the same friend. And this woman has found that ultimate friend in Jesus. And she not only rejoices in that, but she rejoices that she's been found out by Jesus. Jesus. Who loves her still, and her life will never be the same. As for this woman's evangelistic approach, imagine her approach being used today. Imagine someone going up to people today saying, come see a man who told me every sinful thing I ever did, and I want you to meet him too. How well do you think Such an invitation would go over with people. The people hearing this invitation from this woman would know that she has experienced full exposure under the gaze of this man. Yet they would also observe that she somehow feels safe with him. After all, she wants to return to him and bring others with her as she does so which is going to cause the people of the city to want to meet this man who has so touched this woman with his love that she doesn't mind standing in full view of his all-knowing gaze. "'Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done,' she says to the people of her city." And I find it striking that this is the thing about Jesus that she finds most worthy of mention here as she speaks to the people of her city. During her conversation with Jesus, Jesus had spoken to her about other things like living water and worship and his identity as the Messiah. But she doesn't leave Jesus and go to the people of her city and say, come see a man who gave me living water, or come see a man who taught me about worship and told me that he's the Messiah. Those are important things to mention, but she doesn't mention that. Instead, she seems to be especially captivated by the fact that he knew her sin and told her what he knew. So she says to the people, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. So here's the essence of this woman's evangelistic method. She is basically saying, I am a sinner. I have done sinful things. And this man knows all of my sin. And he has dealt specifically with me about my sin issues And I'm inviting you to come and join me in going back to him and beholding him. Notice also this woman does not say, come see a man who told me all the things that my husbands have done to me. She doesn't say, come see a man who told me all the things that the judgmental people of this community have done and all the ways that they have wronged me and hurt me instead she says come see a man who told me all the things that i have done you can bet that this woman had been sent against by others You can bet this woman could have made a huge list a mile long of all the sins that her former husbands and others had committed against her over many years. Perhaps she was even once obsessed with all their sins and nursing her grievances about those sins that others have committed against her. But on this day, after meeting Jesus, this woman's only focus is on her own sin and on the fact that she has been discovered and found out by Jesus. Her focus is on her sins and not on anyone else's. If you're looking for a Savior who will focus only on all the ways that everyone else in your life has failed you, then Jesus probably isn't the Savior for you. If you are looking for a Savior who will excuse your own sins and join you in your campaign against other people's sins, then Jesus is probably not the Savior for you. But if you want a Savior who will deal honestly and forthrightly with you about your sins so that you can repent of your own sins and be saved from your own sins, then Jesus is the Savior for you. And it is only when we've allowed Jesus to deal with our sins in this way that we then can see clearly to rightly perceive and address the sins of others. Again, as far as evangelistic approaches go, I think this woman's testimony represents the kind of testimony that our world today could hear a little more from us as Christians. When we share Christ with the world, I think we also can start off, and I know many of you do in using your own language, that Christ has, let me testify and tell you that Christ has told me all the things that I have done, and he loves me still, and he has provided me atonement for my sins, and I keep going back to him again and again and again, and I'd sure like to invite you to join me in coming to him. Before we start talking about how Christ shows everyone else in the world their sins, let's humbly tell people about how Christ has shown us our sins, just as this woman does here. There's a third observation we can make regarding how this woman is used by Christ to reach her people for him. Number three, uh, she invites her people to join her in concluding that Jesus is the Christ. She invites her people to join her in concluding that Jesus is the Christ. Observe how she ends in verse 29. This is not the Christ, is it? In her theology, the Messiah will know the hearts of people. He will know all that there is to know about them. He will know all their deeds and he will deal with them accordingly. So she speaks to the people of her city about Christ saying, this is not the Christ, is it? Her language here is surprisingly deferential and curiosity-inducing. She could have just declared, this is the Christ. But she decides to word it in the form of a question, and even as far as questions go, she could have said, this is the Christ, is it not? But she doesn't say it that way, instead she says, this isn't the Christ, is it? She's wording her question this way not because she personally has any uncertainty about the matter, but because she's still finding this all a little too wonderful to believe. She still can't fathom her good fortune in having met the Messiah by a well, and that he has come to them in Samaria of all places. And she's asking the people of the city this question in this way in order to prompt them to come out to Jesus with their doubts even and see if their doubts aren't put to rest once they see Jesus for themselves. As for this woman, she doesn't want to see Jesus and process him alone anymore. She wants others to come with her. She wants to figure out the full wonder Of who he is in community with others. So she says, To others come, let us see him together. Let us find the answer to the question of his identity together with one another. Well, how do the people that she speaks to respond to her words? Well, this leads us to the fourth observation regarding how this woman is used by Christ to reach her people for him, and it is here that we begin to see what God does on account of this woman and her testimony. Number four, God uses her testimony to provoke her people to believe in Jesus. God uses her testimony to provoke her people to believe in Jesus. This is amazing. Observe what happens in verse 30. They went out of the city. This is talking about the men of the city, the people of the city. They went out of the city and were coming to him. Skip to verse 39, where the text says, and from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. From these verses, we see that the people of the town stopped whatever it was that they were doing. They go out of the city and they come to Jesus, which is utterly amazing. Would you have come out to see a man whom you knew would see into your heart and know the full truth about you? The people of Samaria did. They knew that if Jesus told this woman everything she ever did, then it's likely that he's going to know everything they've ever done. Yet they still come out to see this one. They drop whatever they're doing and come out to see this one who would look upon them with all-knowing eyes. And please note that based on John's explanation here in verse 39, The Samaritans believed in Jesus based solely on the message that this woman delivered to them. This would be easy to miss. Look again at verse 39. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman. In other words, they believed in Jesus before they even laid eyes on him. They simply heard what this woman said And they believed in him. And notice again how verse 39 is worded, telling us that they believed in him because of the word of the woman. Which means that they don't just believe in him because of the words that came out of her mouth, but also because of the woman from whom those words are coming Evidently, she is a transformed woman, and they can see that. This woman was once a sinful woman, and now she's running around talking about someone who told her everything that she ever did. Perhaps this woman was formerly a defensive blame shifter and an accuser of others, yet now she's running around town talking about her own sin, and how this man told her everything she ever did. And she seems liberated by the experience. She's never looked happier, the people would observe. And she's wanting to return to this one and bring people with her as she does so. And so the men of the city, the people of the city, they hear what she says. They see the change that has come over this woman, and they're blown away. They listen to these words coming from the mouth of this particular woman, and they immediately conclude that whoever this woman has run into must be the Messiah. And whatever living water this woman received from this Messiah, they want to go to him and say, I'll have what she's having. So get this picture in your mind. The people believe that Jesus is the Messiah before they reach Him. They believe on account of what the woman says, and they come out to Jesus on account of their belief in what she has said to them about Jesus. Upon hearing her words, they conclude right away that He is the Messiah, and it is this belief that compels them to stop whatever they are doing and to come out. To see this one whom they've already chosen to believe in, based on the testimony of this woman. Commentators rightly point out that it is impossible to read this here in this text and not realize how these Samaritans are putting their Jewish counterparts to shame. The Jews demanded miraculous signs. They needed miracles before they would believe. And even when they saw miracle after miracle, many of them still did not believe. They're still asking Jesus, you know, after hundreds of miracles, what sign do you show us that shows that you're the Messiah? Yet these Samaritans haven't even seen Jesus yet. They simply hear a testimony from this woman and they believe in Jesus. That's amazing. And they do even more than this, which leads us to a fifth observation regarding how this woman is used by Christ to reach her people for him. Number five, God uses her testimony to cause her people to ask Jesus to stay with them. God uses her testimony to cause her people, to ask or invite Jesus to stay with them. Observe what happens in verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. It was faith in Jesus that caused the Samaritans to come out to Jesus. And now verse 40 makes clear why they came out to Jesus. They didn't simply come out to see him. They came out to persuade him to come and stay with them. The tense of the verb asking is what's called an imperfect tense in the Greek, which indicates that they kept on asking, meaning that they had to persist and be a little pushy. For a while, but Jesus eventually relents and decides to stay with them for two wonderful days. And so, once again, just think about what these Samaritans are doing and ask yourself if you would have done the same thing. If I were to tell you this morning that I've just encountered someone here on the campus uh, who has the miraculous gift of reading people's minds. And he can read people's hearts completely and know everything about the entirety of their life. He has a supernatural knowledge of everyone's sin history and the present workings of sin in their life at the moment. And I have just met such a man. And he's on the campus. What would you do? Would you want to see... This person, I suspect some of you would run for your cars and get off the campus as soon as possible. I wonder what I would do. Would you respond by saying, oh, Pastor Milton, I want to go to this person right away and try to convince him to come to my house and stay with me. That's what the Samaritans do as they go out in order to ask him to come and stay with them. The actions of these Samaritans teach us something valuable about true saving faith. Their actions teach us that true saving faith views Jesus as more than someone to come out and see. True saving faith views this all-knowing Lord who will deal forthrightly and thoroughly with your sin issues as someone that you not only want to see, but you want to have come and stay with you. So I ask you this morning, is Jesus someone that you like to come out and see on Sunday mornings, or is he someone you invite to come and stay with you Monday through saturday do you come to church on sunday and see jesus and then say to him "Um, stay right here on this campus stay right here in this care group and i'll see you next sunday when i come back or do you desire to bring jesus with you meaningfully into every arena of your life every day of your life every moment Well, to their credit, these Samaritans saw Jesus as someone that they wanted to have come into their town and stay with them. And this whole response from them was set in motion by the testimony of this Samaritan woman to them. There's a sixth and final observation regarding how this woman is used by Christ to reach her people for him. Number six, God uses her testimony to take her people beyond the need for her testimony. God uses her testimony to take her people beyond the need for her testimony. Observe what is said in verses 41 and 42. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now we learn that many more people believed because of his word that they were hearing from Jesus now directly, which is still remarkable. Once again, the Jews many times hardly listened to the words that Jesus spoke. They insisted on seeing miraculous signs and often still would not believe, but these Samaritans are believing simply because of the things that they've heard Jesus say. There's not a whisper in this chapter about any miracles that Jesus performs that causes any of them to believe. He merely speaks and teaches, and that's enough for them to believe in him. In fact, notice the progression in this story. In verse 39, we learn that the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman. That's in verse 39. In verse 41, we're told that many more believed because of his word, word. And then in verse 42, these people say to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. In other words, we have heard for ourselves from him directly and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. Now, a question to ask is why do these Samaritans talk this way to this woman? Why do they feel the need to say to this woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe? I mean, is this some sort of swipe at this woman? And the answer is not at all. They're complimenting this woman with gratitude. What they're saying is what you told us about Jesus was accurate, We found the reality of Jesus to be as great as you led us to expect through your words. So we are right now believing in Jesus, not anymore because of what you said to us, but because of our direct experience of him. And their words would have been good news to this woman. And hearing words like these would be good news to anyone who evangelizes People. A good evangelist wants people obviously to trust in the truthfulness of the words they're speaking about Jesus, but they want people to move beyond a reliance on their own words about Jesus and to experience Jesus personally and directly and then to believe in Jesus for deeper reasons that come from the reservoir of their own personal experience of him. Does that make sense? I was raised in a Christian home, as I know a number of you in this room were. So I was blessed to have parents who taught me about Jesus from my youngest days, um, I had Sunday school teachers and youth leaders that spoke to me about Jesus, who impacted my life uh, in unspeakable ways. When I was young, I trusted my parents, for example, and I believed in Jesus, I think, because of my parents' word, because I trusted my parents. And I believed in Jesus in reliance upon my parents' words until I reached the age of 16 and had my own crisis of faith that lasted for about two years or so. When the Lord brought me into a direct encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I stand before you this morning as a 58-year-old man and... I am happy to say to my mom and dad today, I don't believe in Jesus today because of what you told me. Through your influence, I have come to experience Jesus for myself. And I have found him to be every bit as wonderful as you told me that he would be. And I believe in Jesus today, not because of what you said, but because of all that I have heard and experienced of the goodness of Jesus over these many years. My parents would rejoice in that. In fact, to appreciate this, imagine the reverse happening. Imagine that I am 58 years old, and I am speaking to my parents and saying to them, I believe in Jesus, mom and dad, and my one and only reason for believing in him is because you told me 50 years ago that he is worthy of my trust. That's why I believe today as a 58-year-old man. My parents would be sorely disappointed to hear that. They would wonder why nothing has happened in the last 50-plus years To wean me from the need to rely so exclusively on their testimony to me about him. And what's so cool about these Samaritans, guys, is that they're only two days into knowing Jesus. Two days. And they're already weaned from any dependence upon this woman's testimony They have heard the teaching of Jesus. They've conversed with him themselves. They've engaged with him, and they're already believing in him because of what they've experienced directly as they've engaged with Jesus personally. Just two days in. And if you repent of your sins and you look to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will experience the same to be true in your own life as well, just two days in. In fact, after I surrendered my life to the Lord at the age of 18, the very next day, I'm asking myself, how did I ever live a single day apart from Jesus? Jesus. You will find this to be true in your own life, and your Christian walk won't be based for the rest of your life on something you heard someone say about Jesus, but it will be based on your growing conviction of the truth of who he is as you experience the power of Jesus and his grace for yourself. Notice what these Samaritans are saying to this woman now that they've experienced Jesus directly. They say, we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Well, wow. Back in John 3.16, Jesus told Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then we come end to John 4, and we see Jesus almost right away beginning to engage with a Samaritan woman who was considered by Jews to be a despised foreigner. As William Barclay says here, as Jesus begins to engage with this Samaritan woman, here is the beginning of the universality of the gospel. Here is God so loving the world Not in theory, but in action. And now we see Jesus bringing salvation to the Samaritans in the city of Sychar, leaving them personally confessing that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world and not just the Jews only. And they know this is true because Jesus physically showed up and he came to them. They are despised Samaritans whom the Jews wanted nothing to do with. And yet this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, has come to them and taught them by his words and by his actions that he is the Savior of the world and happy to be their Savior too. And all of this started with the simple testimony of a five times divorced Samaritan woman. There's so much for us to ponder from the few verses we've looked at this morning, and we've pondered a number of things along the way that I won't repeat here. But let me just ponder one more thing with you as we wrap up this morning. In this story, we find something profoundly ancient reversed and turned on its head. In the story of the fall, back in Genesis chapter 3, Eve, the first woman, goes to a tree and is tempted to take part of the forbidden fruit of that tree. And she partakes of that fruit And then she goes to the man in her life and invites him to join her in eating that forbidden fruit. And he does. And sin has come into the world through them. But in John 4, a daughter of Eve goes to a well. She meets Jesus, who literally tempts her. With living water that he offers. She partakes of that water. And then, having partaken of that fresh living water that Jesus has provided her, she goes to the men in her life and tells them about it and invites them to come and partake together with her. And they do. In the garden, Back in Genesis 3, the serpent, Satan, goes to the woman first. Here in Samaria, Jesus goes to the woman first. Eve led her husband into sin. The Samaritan woman leads the men in her life into the glories of salvation. Which means that where the first woman failed... Jesus gives this Samaritan woman a chance to succeed. Why? Because Jesus is the God of second chances. Because no one is ever too broken for Christ. Then came the king's son and saw the broken sword, hilt buried in the dry and trodden sand, and ran and snatched it. And with battle shout lifted afresh, he hewed his enemy down and saved a great cause that heroic day. What is not to love about a savior like this? There is no one so worthy of your trust as he is if you have never put your trust in christ and called out to him for salvation please pray to him today and ask him to be your lord and savior and ask him to come and stay with you and go with you wherever you go yes he will speak the truth to you about your sins Oh, he speaks truth like no other, but he will also offer himself as the ultimate solution to your sins. He died on a cross to give you atonement for your every sin. There is no sin Jesus will ever speak to you about that he did not provide atonement for through his shed blood at the cross. And he will give himself to you in friendship and love you like no other. And many of us in this room can testify and say, yes, that is what we have found as well. No matter how broken you are this morning, no matter the brokenness that you're coming from, run to Jesus. Believe in Jesus then let yourself be held firmly in the grip of Jesus, realizing that in his hands, you can be a mighty instrument for God. In fact, it is only when you are in the hands of Jesus in this way that you will discover the truest and the freest version of yourself and truly be useful in bringing about good in this world that will survive the fires of Judgment Day and redound for all of eternity. Why is this so? Because Jesus loves to save broken people like you and like me, and he loves to use broken people like you and me and this Samaritan woman who are finding salvation in him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so thankful for the gift of your Son, that you gave him to come into this world and to live the life that he lived, to die the death that he died. But also, Lord, that you opened his mouth, that he might teach and speak the kinds of things that he teaches that we find in this book, the Bible. It's a scary thing to imagine human history apart from Christ coming into this world and doing what he did and speaking what he spoke. And we are all, as a congregation, immeasurably blessed by even what's been revealed in your word to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that if there are any here today that have never put their trust in you, Lord, that they would know that their brokenness does not disqualify them from you. Their brokenness is the very thing that qualifies them for you because Jesus himself said, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for those who think they're whole. I came for the broken. I came for the sick. I came for the unrighteous. I just pray, Lord, that you would touch their hearts and open their hearts to the Lord Jesus and that they would come running to him this morning and find in him the ultimate friend who is like no other. Help us as a congregation to be so caught up in the glories of who Jesus is that we cannot but speak about him to others. And as we just keep coming to him, and enjoying fellowship with Him in our highs and in our lows, in our moments of victory, and our moments of defeat, as we keep returning again and again to Him, may we invite others to join us as we do so, that they might come to know this one that we have discovered to be so wonderful as He. And use our testimony, Lord, just as you use the testimony of this Samaritan woman, And if you do, we will give you all the praise and all the glory. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,